Have you ever felt like that? Welcome to this Christian journey. Well, welcome to worship today. We're so glad that you're here. And this is the first weekend of Advent. So I wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you had a great time with family and friends. But also, I pray that this Christmas season will be one that's very, very special for you. You know, most of us, uh, if we've been in church much at all, we know the traditional Christmas story, right? Mary's miraculous pregnancy, Joseph's perplexity, visits by angels, Caesar's tax, trip to Bethlehem, born in a stable, visits by shepherds and wise men. Most of us know that story pretty well. We could, you, you, you could stand right here with me and recite the facts, and that's good. It's wonderful to be able to know the truth of what happened that very first Christmas as God invaded this world on a mission. But you know what? I said to our leaders, I want to do something different this year. I I want us to celebrate that amazing story. I want us to celebrate Christmas, but with a twist on it. I want to do something I've never heard anybody do before. I want to do something that I've never done. I want to focus on the mission of Jesus. Why did he come to earth in the first place? And if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus was pretty clear, actually, about why he came. It's interesting to me. He made a number of purpose statements that said to everybody loud and clear, I am a man on a mission here. This is not a quaint little story that you're going to celebrate once a year at Christmas time. Jesus came with a very clear purpose in mind. And so uh, let's start at the end. Let's start with the purpose in mind this Christmas. And I think that as we focus on these four mission statements of Jesus, we'll start today with the first one, and then each week a new mission statement. I think we'll not only understand better what Christmas was truly about. We'll understand more of who Jesus really is. And personally, we'll understand more of what he's called us to be in this world. So let's jump right in with the very first purpose statement that I want us to explore today. And it's found in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5. If you want to take some notes on your your, uh, program sheet, that would be wonderful. Here's Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's one of the purpose statements that Jesus made about why he came that first Christmas. I've come to fulfill the law and really the prophets and what they said, and what they spoke about. So as we start this series, I want you to consider today two very important ways that Jesus did that, that Jesus fulfilled the law. And here's the first one. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament's predictions. The Old Testament's predictions. You know, I find that people in our culture are pretty enamored 
with trying to find out the future. Uh, investors think, boy, if I could only know what's coming down the pike, man, I could make a killing with my investments, right? I would know all the right moves to make, all the right things to invest in. It would be unbelievable. Relationally, people wonder, I wonder what the future holds, they think. If they could only know, you know, what the future would be like and they would orchestrate their life relationally according to that. All of you college football fans out there, you know that this year is unique in college football. College football has never had a playoff before, only bowl games that many of us thought were fairly meaningless, although they made a lot of money for the sponsors and the universities to be sure. But, but you, you kind of wanted teams to play head-to-head and find out who the real champion is in a direct competition. Well, this year it's happening. And so it's created a whole new buzz around college football. Things are heating up. And the big question all season is, who's in? Who's in? If you watch ESPN and all the sports channels, who's in is the big question. And everybody wants to know. Everybody's making their predictions. But here's the problem. It's awfully hard to predict the future, right? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? Oh yeah, there are people that kind of present themselves and market themselves as clairvoyance, but it's very difficult for anyone to consistently predict and accurately predict what's coming in the future. You know, I, I love the meteorologists, the weather people who do such a great job. I mean, they do, really do a fantastic job, but I sometimes feel sorry for them. You know what I'm saying? It's hard to predict the weather. Now, as you know, this past Wednesday, we had kind of an early winter storm. But just a few days before that, as I was thinking about, okay, what is Thanksgiving going to be like? We've got some family coming in and all that. And I looked and my weather app on my iPhone said it was going to be sunny and clear on Wednesday. My, how things change. It's awfully hard to predict the future. But here's the deal. Jesus came to fulfill the law. All those Old Testament predictions that had been made in the law and the prophets starting all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. You will crush his head. He will strike your heel. That was a prophecy about Messiah who was to come. And there are roughly 300 of those prophecies in the Old Testament that all came true in Jesus Christ. Let me share with you just a few of them. It's amaz- they're amazing in their specificity at times. For instance, did you know that the Old Testament predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead? That's right. What we celebrated Easter time was predicted in a place like Psalm 16. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices because you will not abandon your holy one to decay. That's a prediction about the resurrection that Messiah is not going to go through the normal decomposition process. You're going to do something special. That was predicted hundreds of years before it happened. Or consider briefly Psalm 22, a psalm that's extraordinary. It has a couple of dozen specific detailed predictions about the death of Jesus. It's in fact the psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. And I'm not silent, yet you are throned as the Holy One. You're the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. And you, they trusted, were not disappointed. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. And then he goes on to say, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. There's at least two dozen things as you read that whole psalm that came true specifically in the death of Jesus Christ. And it was written hundreds of years before the Persians even invented the torturous method of crucifixion, hundreds of years before the Romans perfected it. When you read it, it's actually a little bit unnerving. You think, this is extraordinary. How can this be? But the prophecies just go on and on and on. Isaiah 7, 14 predicted that a virgin will conceive and have a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. That came true in the birth of Jesus Christ. Micah 5, verse 2 predicted his birthplace would be Bethlehem in Judea. Zechariah 11 predicted that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that the money would be thrown down in the Lord's house and would be used to buy a potter's field. You've got to be kidding me. That could be predicted hundreds of years before it occurred. Now, here's the thing. When you look at those specific predictions written hundreds of years before they came true, scoffers through the centuries said, ah, Christians just cook the books there. Here's what really happened. You see, those things just occurred, and then Christians, after the fact, went back to the Old Testament documents and inserted those prophecies to try to make it look miraculous, to try to make it look like those had been predicted in advance. And you know what? 
It was impossible, as ridiculous as those claims may seem, it was impossible to refute them for a long time because the oldest Old Testament manuscripts we have, the Masoretic text, dated to about a thousand years after Christ. So we had no manuscripts that predated Jesus. So you couldn't disprove those claims that Christians had cooked the books until the late 1940s when a little shepherd boy in the Qumran community near the Dead Sea was looking for a lost sheep and threw a stone into a cave and heard pottery smashing. That was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls contained most of the Old Testament documents that had been carefully preserved in pottery. And in that arid climate were in amazing condition, although they were about 2,000 years old. And everybody wondered, will they be there? Did Christians really cook the books? Did they go back and write those in after the fact? And as they unrolled those brittle manuscripts of Micah and Isaiah and the Psalms and Zechariah, there they were. All of those predictions and all the scholars agreed, these date well before the time of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fulfill all of those Old Testament predictions. And the odds of all of those happening in one person are astronomical. In fact, Peter Stoner was the head of the math department of Pasadena Community College, an expert not only in mathematics and computer science, but also in Old Testament prophecy. And using the law of compound probability, Peter Stoner did some incredible calculations. Stoner predicted... Dr. Stoner predicted that just eight of those, the odds of just eight of those prophecies coming true in one person was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one over 10 with 16 zeros behind it. Do you know what that is? That's incredible. That's the odds of our government balancing the budget and getting us out of debt in the next five years. That's what that is right there. He tried to illustrate, seriously, what that is like because we can't wrap our brains around that. He said, if you took that many silver dollars, they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. That's how many coins that, is, that would be. And Stoner said, look, to try to help you understand how unlikely it is that even eight of these would be fulfilled in one person. Let's suppose that you covered the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. You took one magic marker and marked one silver dollar, just one. You stirred them all up again. You parachuted a guy in, said you can go anywhere you want to, but you can only pick up one coin. The odds of him picking up the marked coin are the same as just eight of those predictions coming true in one person. And yet they all came true in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says in 2 Peter that no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God.
Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. I want to give you just one illustration of how he did that in his hometown. When he began his public ministry, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth where he'd grown up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he was handed the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And he unrolled it to Isaiah 61. And I want you to see what was prophesied there. Luke chapter 4 is where you can find this passage. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. Gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. You bet they were fastened on him. You know why? Because all of these local folks in the community who'd seen Jesus grow up right there, they had heard these miracles going around about him healing people, about him doing these stories going around about him doing miracles. And so their eyes were fastened on him. But I want you to see what Jesus said next. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. Note that word. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Listen, if you're not astute to what's going on here, you're just going to let that go by you. Jesus is claiming right there, I'm the Messiah. Everybody knew that was a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61. They all knew that. Even the most untutored person among them knew that was a prophecy about what it would be like when Messiah came. Jesus is saying, today, this is fulfilled. I'm the anointed one, the long-awaited one. And they couldn't handle that. Somebody said, well, he can't be the Messiah. I remember my sister used to babysit for him. We can't be the Messiah. I, 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 remember, I remember him working on our house back when he was in his 20s. I remember him as a little kid pulling his little wooden wagon up these streets here. He can't be the Messiah. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own people. And so they were so, they were so disturbed by Jesus' claim to be Messiah. They took him over to the edge of town to a cliff. They were going to throw him off. But Jesus, by his power, slipped through their midst. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of all these prophecies. Now, what does this have to do with you? A whole lot. You see, there are people today who will say, well, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He really was. He was ahead of his time. He was a great leader like Muhammad, like Buddha, like Confucius. He was a very sagacious, insightful person, ethically and socially far ahead of his time. He was a good guy, but don't claim he's any more than that. But you can't read the Bible and what Jesus claimed for himself and conclude that he was just a good moral teacher. 
Jesus made statements like this, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus made the audacious statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made the audacious claim, whoever drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. Jesus not only healed people's bodies, but he claimed to forgive sins. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Simon Peter knew who he was claiming to be. When Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? Simon Peter said, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. John, one of his apostles, who was the skeptical one, who would not believe even when all the others did because he hadn't been present at one of the appearances, he said, until I see it with my own eyes, until I can touch the wound, I won't believe. And Jesus appeared again, and after John had been able to experience the risen Christ, he fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't say, well, John, Haven't you gone to political correctness school? Don't you know that I'm just a good moral teacher? Listen, don't get exaggerated here, bud. That's going to cause controversy. No, Jesus said, you've believed, John, because you've seen. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. So here's the personal message of Christmas on this first Advent weekend for you, dear friend. If you're one of the explorers, as we like to call people who are on the journey exploring who Jesus is, if you're exploring the claims of Christ and wondering what Christianity is all about and just kind of kicking the tires and window shopping Christianity, hey, I just want to share with you, you're in a great place for that. But I also want to say to you, Jesus doesn't leave us a lot of middle ground if we're being honest. In fact, I, I don't believe anybody's ever said it better than the great Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And let me just read to you his exact words and what he said about Jesus and what Jesus claimed. He said, a man who's merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. I hope you're listening to this. This This is good. This is right on. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is a son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. Then Lewis adds, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. So I I pray for you on your journey. I, I believe that you're sincerely seeking the truth, but I want to say to you, Jesus doesn't leave you a lot of middle ground. It's kind of hard if you're taking this seriously just to claim he's a good moral teacher. You've either got to call him a gross liar, an absolute lunatic, or you have to conclude he's Lord 
and God. Now, we could stop right there, and perhaps we should, because that's a whole lot to ponder. Would you agree? Whole lot of predictions that came true in Christ. Wow, what a miracle Christmas is. But I need to go one step further, I feel, because you know what? We live in a very religious area. Are you aware of that? Oh, I know, according to all the surveys, we're the most post-Christian part of the country. I understand that. But still, the people I talk to still have this sort of religious memory. Even if they don't even go to church anywhere, there's still very much a religious spirit in our area. And so I need to talk to you about one other meaning behind that first mission statement where Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. And that is this, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament law's limitations. It's limitations. Now, we've just spent nine weeks looking at the Ten Commandments, and here's what we concluded. Cliff notes on the Ten Commandments. You can't keep them. God bless you. Have a good life. That's what we concluded. They're impossible to keep. In fact, we even concluded, how's this for a conclusion after nine weeks of study? The commandments weren't primarily written to make us better people. Wow. They were written to show us that we need help big time. They were written to show us that we could never save ourselves, that we need a savior. And so I want to just for a few moments unpack what I mean by he came to fulfill the Old Testament law's limitations. See, here's the problem with the Old Testament law, and here's the problem with religion. And some of you may be showing back up at church, you know, but you, you kind of think about this every time this time of year, and you think, I want to get back in the Christmas spirit, and so going back to church is just a part of that. Well, bravo, there's probably something good about that and some upside to that, but I want you to understand something. Religion is bondage. Christianity is freedom. Religion is guilt. <laughs> because you're, you're trying to keep this code, these rules that you never can keep. Religion is rules. Christianity is a relationship with the living Christ who gives you the power to actually want to be a different person, and it happens from the inside out. You see, one of the astounding statements that Jesus made after that purpose statement is in Matthew 5, 20. Here's what he said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you something? That's bad news. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the most religious, upright, good people you'd ever want to meet. They crossed all their T's, dotted all their I's. They were good folks. And Jesus comes along and says, that's not good enough. Unless your righteousness exceeds them, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. Bad news. And then he kind of illustrates that with some examples. What he's saying is, this has to be an inside-out job. He's saying, your focus needs to be not on just keeping Old Testament laws or, or keep, keeping from 
you know, breaking the laws, your focus needs to be a transformation from the inside. Look at one of the illustrations he uses. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, don't murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be danger of the fire of hell. Again, he's saying, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Don't, don't just deal with action. Deal with the attitude that would lead to murder. I came to transform you from the inside. I came to do what the Old Testament law and rules of religion could never do. And in your relationship with me, I'm going to give you the power to actually want to be a truly righteous person and to not just do it out of duty. He gives another example. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but... I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, it's got to start from the inside out, guys. Just trying to be religious, just trying to keep the rules is never going to cut it. One final example. You've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, what's that about? There was actually a law in Palestine at this time because they were ruled by the Romans that if a Roman soldier ask you to carry his pack for a mile, you had to do it. You didn't have to carry it more than a mile, but it was the law. You had to carry it for one mile. And so uh, Jewish young men all over the territory had literally, scholars tell us, marked out the distance in both directions on the road from their house for one mile so that if they had to carry a Roman soldier's pack... They weren't going to carry it one step further than a mile. Now imagine this young man out working in his garden. Roman soldier comes by. Hey boy, carry my pack. He throws his hoe down in anger. He crawls over the wall. He gets the pack. He begins to drag it. He's grumbling to himself. He's seething with anger. He carries that pack exactly one mile throws it down on the ground, glares at the Roman soldier, stalks back to his garden, hits his hoe against a tree in anger, breaks it in two, becomes even more angry, goes up on his porch, kicks the cat, goes inside and has a horrible family uh, evening with his family. The duty of keeping the law is horrible. But the next day, he hears Jesus teach. And Jesus talks about this inside-out transformation. I've come to deal with your very attitude to change you from the inside out. And so if a Roman soldier asks you to take his pack of out, look, take it two miles. And so a soldier comes by, a different soldier comes by and says, carry my pack. He jumps over that wall with a smile. 
He picks up that pack and outdistances the soldier. He carries on a meaningful conversation along the way, asks the soldier about his family, how his duty's going here in Palestine, how things are working for him. He goes past the mile marker and just keeps on carrying it. And the soldier finally says, look, you've gone way more than a mile. I, I appreciate it. He says, oh, that's okay. I'm glad to do it. Hope you have a good day. Soldier says, look, can I give you a tip or something? He says, no, I don't, I don't need a tip. And the soldier takes off his glove and extends his hand and says, look, I, if you ever need a friend in the Roman government, you can count on me. They shake hands. The young man whistles and practically skips his way back to his garden, does two hours work in one, goes in, picks up the cat and pets it, goes inside, has a marvelous evening with his family. What's the difference? The difference is religion versus relationship. And here's my concern for some of you as we move toward our close today. My concern is that you think Christianity is all about keeping this duty you've got. And every time you think about it, it's just a burden. And it actually kind of makes you angry sometimes that God would actually put that kind of load on you because it's just about keeping rules. It's just about towing the line. It's just about doing all these things that you have to do in order to hope that you can earn God's favor one day. What a lousy life. That's not what Jesus came to bring. Religion is about keeping the rules in hopes that maybe one day you'll be acceptable to God. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus who kept all the rules. And you're going to stand before God one day with his report card. And God's going to say, well done, because it wasn't based on your righteousness, but on Jesus' righteousness. Keith Miller, popular writer of another generation, tells a story about one time in his life, he's just being very open and vulnerable, when he was tempted to have an extramarital affair. And he was developing this friendship with a woman, and emotionally, he was already unfaithful to his wife, and He actually one day was ready to make this affair a physical one. He checked into a hotel under an assumed name. He got everything ready. He picked up the phone. He dialed the woman's number. And as he did, he he said it was like I heard a voice saying, Keith, I love you. He put the phone down. He was shaken. My hand was literally trembling. I, I I couldn't believe it. Finally, after a few minutes, he composed himself and he picked up the phone again. He said, it was like I heard the voice saying, Keith, even if you have the affair, I'll still love you. He put the phone down. He never called that woman again. He repented of his sin. He went back to his wife. He attempted to restore his marriage and his relationship with God. And he did that not out of a sense of duty to the rules. He did it because he didn't want to offend the one who loved him unconditionally. Do you have religion? Or do you have a relationship? 
I'll tell you right now, if there's anything we ought to be thankful for this Christmas and Thanksgiving season, it's that Jesus came to abolish religion and open up a whole new understanding of what it means to be in relationship with the Almighty God. Do you have a relationship with Him? Are you trusting in Him or are you trusting in your own ability to try to keep the rules? It'll never work. Here's the miracle of it all. When you start trusting in Him and you trust in what He's already done for you and His perfect record in keeping the rules. Listen, God accepts you as forgiven. He forgives all your sins. He adopts you into His family and He starts changing you from the inside out. And here's the miracle of it all. Then you actually want to please this holy God. And there's so many sins that you do avoid and so many rules that you do keep. Not because it's law, because you you don't want to offend the one who loves you unconditionally. Father, I pray that all of those listening would have spiritual ears to hear today. I pray, O God, that you would work deep in the hearts of people. And for those who are still dealing with a yoke of religion, bondage, fear, you would remove that yoke and exchange it for one of freedom, love, courage, relationship with the living God. We love you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus came to fulfill the law and that all those rules that we could never keep He's given us grace, he's given us freedom, and he's changing us from the inside out. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that we can know you, the true and living God, and Jesus Christ our Lord whom you've sent. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.